Now sports with sports director Scott Lever. We haven't seen football played at the BMO Harris Bank Center in Rockford since the Rock River Raptors went dormant after their 2009 season. Tomorrow night, though, football returns to the BMO like never before. The women's 7-on-7 Extreme League, or X-League, will make its debut here with the Chicago Blitz taking on the Seattle Thunder. The league's owner and chairman is the coach, Mike Ditka. The Blitz has two local players on it. The quarterback is former Rockford Lutheran and NIU point guard standout Stephanie Raymond Young. Guilford graduate Emma Vanderheiden plays safety. <laughs> These women are athletes. We got Olympic track qualifying runners, professional basketball players. Like these women are no joke. Very up tempo, uh, power hitting, um, just dominant women. We come to the field and we have one agenda, and that's to lay out the person in front of you. At Guilford, Vanderheiden competed in soccer, volleyball, and cross country. She then competed in soccer in college at Upper Iowa. When that ended, she needed something to continue to feed her competitive drive. After I graduated college, I kind of had like that athlete depression. You know, like you go from being a full-time student athlete and then to nothing instantly when you leave. Raymond was a big-time scorer and playmaker at Lutheran and NIU. She also had a stint in the WNBA with the Chicago Sky. She threw two touchdown passes and ran for a third in the Blitz opening win against Kansas City. Her athleticism translates to any sport, but she says football, being the focal point as a quarterback, is far different than it was playing point guard. It's a whole new ball game. I stepped into this position knowing the risk that I'm taking, and I think that even just with the last game, I proved a lot of people wrong, and that I could actually play this position and play this new sport. The X League was supposed to get rolling in 2019, but COVID forced the league to hold off until this year with a limited schedule. Teams are only playing two regular season games and then the playoffs. This game between the Blitz and Seattle Saturday night is huge. Both teams won their opening games. The winner of this game is guaranteed a spot in the playoffs. It's going to be the best game of the season. Very, very competitive. Uh, Seattle has a lot of threats on their team. And to have this game being played in their hometown makes it even more special for Raymond Young and Vanderheiden. When they announced that our home game was in Rockford this year, it was kind of like a like, like an endorphin rush. I'm like, wow, my, all my family and friends can come. And obviously, I have a lot of uh, ties to Rockford. You know, with my family being here, with me, uh, you know, growing up here, I do look forward to keeping Rockford as our hometown. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, all right, all right. Let's get this uh, show on the road. How are you, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon. It's Good Seats still available, as you know by now, hopefully. The curious little podcast that is devoted to all things from the realm of what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us. If this is your first time, uh, pull up a chair, relax, enjoy, and uh, take in the festivities. And if you're a return listener, well, we appreciate that too, for sure. Hopefully you're telling your friends and they'll tell two friends and so on. And so on. It's uh, football time again uh, on uh, this week's episode, and uh, we're talking about the women's variety once more. Uh, as you may remember, we have done uh, uh, quite a few uh, episodes talking about uh, some of the uh, professional uh, exploits of women in the game of uh, American football. Uh, our pal Steve Guinan talking about the uh, Toledo Troopers, one of the more memorable, perhaps most dominant of uh, franchises in this National Women's Football League that was around in the 1970s and early 1980s. Talked to our our pal Olivia Kwan talking about the Houston Hurricanes franchise. Our pals Frankie and Lindsay talking about the uh, the league itself in their book, 
uh, about uh, the league's history. Uh, again, in the 70s, 1980s, all those great episodes, please search those up. You'll find those to be enormously interesting, even if you don't consider yourself a a fan of of the of women's sports or women playing football or or any of that kind of stuff. It's it's fascinating stuff. But we're going to go a little bit more broadly this week uh, to kind of get into sort of the the I guess the overarching narrative of women and pro football with uh, Dr. Russ Crawford this week. He a professor of history at Ohio Northern University and the author of the uh, new book from our pals at. Uh, the University of Nebraska Press called Women's American Football, Breaking Barriers on and Off the Gridiron. And yeah, we'll talk about um, the NWFL for sure. Um, we talk about the antecedents of that because uh, uh, women playing football, uh, both pro and uh, semi and amateur versions, pro, semi pro and, and amateur versions, certainly occurred uh, before the founding of this uh, NWFL. We'll also talk about uh, the, um, uh, the, the status of the sport, uh, today, uh, by, uh, virtue of, uh, the two main, let's call them professional leagues, uh, in the United States, the women's football Alliance, uh, and the women's national football conference. Uh, but of course, in between, we're going to be talking about the, what you kind of heard a little, uh, reference to there in our little, uh, our little setup clip. And that is this, Odd thing, but still very much alive, and and part of this narrative, part of this history. Uh, it's now called the X League, but you may remember it from its original form uh, when it uh, came onto the scene uh, back in uh, 2009, called the Lingerie Football League. Yeah, and it was then uh, relabeled and rechristened uh, the Legends Football League. It. Uh, is now on its third incarnation, known simply as the X League. No, no uh, confusion there with the XFL on the men's side coming up in a couple of weeks as we record this. The same CEO and founder, Mitch Mortaza, and the uh, the clip that you just heard came from last summer. This was uh, from uh, the Rockford uh, TV station WTVO, the ABC affiliate, uh, Eyewitness News, and. Um, uh, an interview with two of the players uh, from the team known as the Chicago Blitz, not to be confused with the Chicago Bliss uh, from the original versions of the Lingerie and then Legends uh, Football League. But uh, the Chicago Blitz, Stephanie Raymond, uh, you heard there, and M Emma Vander Hayden, uh, two of the players that, as far as we know, are still on the roster. Uh, for the X League's Chicago Blitz, they were playing uh, a game at that point. That that was uh, a clip from August of last year. They were, they were playing a. It was a, it was a shortened uh, season after having been uh, off, if you will, for the uh, various COVID years. And it was kind of wasn't a full season last year of the X League, which ironically was its debut or reincarnated year. Uh, it was a couple of uh, regular season games, and then they went right to playoffs. And the Chicago Blitz not only won their game against uh, Seattle in Rockford, as uh, discussed in that clip, but they also went on to beat Seattle one more time in the semifinals and then won them to win the, win the championship, the Chicago Blitz. Uh, and again, the Chicago Blitz, not to be confused with the USFL version, for less I digress. Uh, but this uh, X League, uh, formerly known as the Legends Football League and formerly before that, the Lingerie Football League, is a necessary and... Oddly important part of this entirety 
of women's American football. And let's put it this way, the the uh, lingerie football league and the origins of this uh, certainly uh, was uh, a curiosity and not unlike the NWFL, as we've learned, uh, the NWFL, excuse me, back in the 70s and, and early 80s, uh, the beginnings of which was more curiosity and, uh, I, you know, perhaps pandering, I guess, to the sort of um, the, the female form, shall we say, as well as uh, women's ability to, quote unquote, play professional sports, in this case, football, more seen as a uh, an exhibition, uh, more as a uh, a curiosity. Uh, the NWFL, right, these uh, games uh, began as more like halftime entertainment things. And, and the lingerie football league was uh, begotten from uh, something called the lingerie bowl, which was for a couple of years, a pay-per-view distraction from the Super Bowl's halftime show. Uh, perhaps uh, uh, kowtowing to more, shall we say, purient uh, interests. And and make no mistake that that, that league is certainly in its early years, you know, sort of uh, the outfits, I guess you could call them, uh, the uniforms, if, if you want to call them that, were uh, certainly not unattractive, I guess. Uh, neither were the uh, the players per se, but um, it, it certainly uh, did the sport uh, and uh, women's play in the sport uh, pretty much an injustice for sure. Um, and I would argue that the X League, from what I've seen of it from last year, uh, has has very much evolved. Uh, there's there's clearly still a sexiness component to it, but but it's also uh, chock full of players that can literally play the game. Uh, and I, I don't think any player in the current X League, and certainly for the two outdoor leagues that exist today, would uh, be confused with being uh, in it for anything else but the love of the game. And that's certainly something that we've learned uh, in our previous exploits in what used to be the National Women's Football League. Uh, the LFL, whichever version you want to remember, it was certainly uh, those are former uh, versions. You may remember seeing them on MTV2 or on Fuse, various cable networks that most people don't even recognize that they even subscribe to anymore. But uh, all part of this long and surprisingly persistent set of uh, stories and leagues and continued pursuits in the realm of, let's call it, women's American football, very much still alive. Uh, granted, the X League is is one odd sort of indoor-like version of it, but um, it's not odd in that the play is pretty good. It's pretty interesting. And uh, certainly the outdoor uh, leagues are thriving uh, very much at the grassroots level and perhaps maybe even at higher professional forms uh, as we see success in other uh, professional leagues for women. Uh, there are going to be three, maybe even four volleyball pro leagues for women coming up. Uh, obviously, the WNBA is is – a rousing and roaring and ongoing success. Uh, the National Women's Soccer League is doing quite well, thank you. Softball, very much alive. Uh, lacrosse uh, with uh, uh, various uh, exploits, all kinds of stuff. Women's sports has never been in a better position. And uh, we're going to talk about the football realms of that uh, this week, both past and present. Uh, with our guest this week, Russ Crawford, talking about women's American football. And um, let's dispense with the uh, promotion this week and talk to you about how to get this book. It is called, indeed, Women's American Football, Breaking Barriers on and Off the Gridiron. is published by uh, the University of Nebraska Press. And uh, it is available as of uh, November 1st of last year. So it's been out there for a little while. Uh, now, wherever good books are found, and of course, 
We uh, lovingly appreciate it when you go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, when you search up this episode, I think it's number 290, 290, uh, our episode with Russ Crawford, this here, this here little show, uh, you'll find a convenient link to the book. So uh, by all means, uh, click on that and they'll be whisked away to uh, Amazon and you'll get the either the Kindle version or the hardcover version, whichever you prefer. And uh, we'll get a couple of uh, nickels of, uh, of referral love. We appreciate that very much. And I'm sure Russ will, too, because it's another sale of the book. And and uh, it's it's really well done. And uh, it's probably the most comprehensive uh, review, if you will, of the surprising history of women playing American football. Uh, again, both past and present. So by all means, click on over there. And we appreciate when you do so. And uh, we also appreciate you uh, sitting back and enjoying our conversation with Dr. Russ Crawford. Let's talk about women's American football, the lingerie football league, the legends football league. Uh, let's talk about the national women's football league, uh, endless stories there, as well as what's going on now, the women's football Alliance and the women's national football conference, all of that stuff coming up. Here it is. Here's our chat that we had with Russ just a couple. Well, it was actually a number of weeks back just before the holidays, please, as always enjoy. So why don't you uh, perhaps give our audience a bit of a sense of your adjunct uh, to this story of, I guess, the longer arc of uh, women's football in the United States, because it's it's not just this NWFL and a couple of the other topics we'll talk about. It's it's kind of been a thing for quite a long time. I'm really curious as to how you got interested in it and, and why uh, the uh, I think the essential sort of. Uh, 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 overview of, of the of the game uh, for women in the United States. Yeah. Well, I got interested in it when I wrote a book on American football in France, <clears throat> uh, also published with the University of Nebraska Press. It's Le Football, A History of American Football in France. And I came across the sparkles of Villeneuve-Saint-Georges uh, in, in France. And it was a women's team, the first women's team there. And so I wrote about that in the book. And then in 2016, I was in France and a, a buddy of mine <clears throat> um, and I went to watch uh, the, the final game of the Challenge Feminine of the Federation, uh, Fran Federation Francaise de Football Americaine. And um, so we watched the Molas Danier Sersen play against the Argo Canes of Montpellier. And, um, you know, it was very interesting. And so I decided to start researching women's football. And so as opposed to the other two books uh, that you mentioned, they focus in on the National Women's Football League and the Toledo Troopers, more uh, precisely. Uh, I've tried to write an overall history of women playing football, mainly since the 70s. Uh, since Title IX. And so I go through the various leagues that have existed, the major leagues. I, you know, I don't spend much time talking about some of the, the leagues with you know, six or eight teams that lasted a few years, but more or less the, the major leagues like the National Women's Football League, oh, <clears throat> the Independent Women's Football League, the Women's Football Alliance, uh, the Women's National Football Conference, etc., so you must have been uh, taken aback, perhaps, uh, at the fact that the American game football was uh, essentially so entrenched or at least 
being played at a certain high level in France of all places. I mean, was that a was that a revelation to you or did you have some inkling that that this game was fairly well entrenched in other places, but perhaps not as publicized or maybe on the amateur level or, or whatnot? No, I had no idea. <clears throat> um, my wife is French, and um, I think the first time I went to visit her before we were married in France, um, we were having dinner with her, one of her high school friends and her husband, and the husband, John Mark uh, Bircher, uh, got up, went out of the room, and came back in wearing a football helmet. I thought, what? You know, where'd you get that? It's a souvenir of some sort, and it turns out he had played for a, a team in France, a couple of them, and was still playing. And so that's what sparked my interest in doing a book on football in France. Interesting. And then, uh, it, so this is actually dovetails very interestingly with uh, the, the new, new, new uh, expansion, I guess, efforts of the NFL to uh, further colonize the sport uh, in places like Europe and in, in Mexico and potentially other places, certainly Canada. And we've, we've talked about lots of Giant. different fits and starts of that kind of stuff. But, but the fact that the women's game is also still uh, has roots in, in these various places, too, uh, speaks volumes that the sport uh, goes far beyond maybe what we think in the United States is the end-all and be-all. Yeah. Uh, in fact, um, in the interim between the National Women's Football League and, and the leagues that started around 2000, uh, the German women had already started playing themselves. So European women were playing when there were no American women playing football. Well, I, let's dial let's dial it back. Right, the NWFL uh, I think is having a moment uh, years after its existence. Right, with um, uh, with some of the books and the films and that kind of stuff. And I think there are probably some more stories to be unearthed too. I mean, the Dallas Blue Bonnets and uh, just all kinds of interesting uh, things that I think yeah, right. And there's lots of sort of sort of uh, little bits and pieces of history and stuff. But before we get to that, I, I guess I'd love to get a sense from you in in your research. Um, Give us sort of a, a, I guess, a synopsis, maybe a, a really sort of a, a quick sort of understanding of, of sort of the rumblings of the women's game prior to this time in the late 60s, early 70s, when, uh, and we'll talk about Sid Freeman in a few minutes, uh, kind of got the idea to maybe make it a, a bigger thing than it kind of was. Because I think what you're hinting at is it's been kind of a thing, uh, you know, either underground or, or uh, at the grassroots uh, even beyond or before uh, the late 60s to early 70s? Well, um, a colleague from Britain, and here's a future uh, podcast for you, Katie Taylor, is working on getting her dissertation on women playing football from well, 1896 to more or less Title IX in the 1970s uh, published. And so... She's unearthed all sorts of women who were playing football uh, long before Sid Freeman came along, uh, or Friedman came along. Uh, Alice Camp, I believe, uh, the wife of um, Walter Camp, helped him coach. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm going to draw a blank here on uh, the head coach of the University of Illinois team <laughs> back in the day before they canceled football. 
uh, his wife helped him coach as well. And uh, there were <clears throat> women, the, the Los Angeles Amazons, their YouTube videos of, you know, showing them playing in probably what was the Coliseum at the time, or back in the day in the 1950s. Um, there have been powder puff games, including uh, the first one in Cavour, South Dakota. Um, and there were girls' teams and women's teams who oftentimes beat boys' teams uh, in the early days. So women have been playing football since really 1896 when a bunch of uh, probably drunk co-eds uh, played a game in New York City be, you know, for about 10 minutes before the police halted it. Uh, so there, there, there have been women playing football since 1896 at least. What's your what's your perception of uh, why the late '60s, early '70s to uh, take a crack at kind of either professionalizing or or certainly, I guess, elevating the spectacle, perhaps? And maybe that's maybe it's sort of a, a, a loaded suggestion there as as to why then and and how um, the uh, coalescence, I guess, of something more shall we call it professional came about mm -hmm. well Friedman apparently thought he could make some money off of women playing football uh, there had been precedents in Ohio I forgot to mention back in the 1920s uh, a couple of promoters in Toledo had formed a couple of women's football teams and had played sort of barnstorming exhibitions and were making pretty good money off of it until you know, pressure from people like Lou Henry Hoover, who was uh, Herbert Hoover's wife, the first lady, um, put pressure on them to stop because Hoover's wife, uh, Lou Henry Hoover, believed they were exploiting women for money. And so there was some precedent that people would pay to see this, and Friedman apparently thought that was a good idea. It didn't seem like there was any groundswell of you know, women saying we want to play football. I mean, there were examples here and there around the country, but Friedman, Friedman's offer gave women who had grown up loving football the chance to go out there and play just like the, the guys. So, uh, but the, the, the genesis of his effort was, I think what you're sort of hinting at was sort of, I guess, sort of in retrospect, something a bit more exploitative, right? I mean, this Women's Professional Football League, I think is what it was called, uh, mm -hmm. maybe highly in quotes, um, was I, an exhibition kind of thing, right? I mean, I, the, I, I, my understanding is that there were it was halftime sort of uh, games played during, say, NFL games or, or trying to affix themselves to uh, more traditional and or professional or collegiate men's games and stuff and using this more as truly as an exhibition but it seems like over time it went from curiosity and spectacle to something a little bit more hey maybe there's something a little bit more uh legit that could be sort of uh, born from all of it well the exhibitions during nfl games there was the uh let's see who the frankfurt frankfurt peaches uh, who had played 
games in the 1930s, but that was only, I think, a one-off thing, and maybe another NFL team had an exhibition like that. But by the 1970s, Friedman didn't, I don't think, as far as I can remember, schedule any games with NFL teams or college teams. These were standalone events that he thought would draw in spectators, probably for the spectacle. Uh, but then uh, people like uh, the coach of the uh, Toledo Troopers, you know, bought into it and wanted to make this real football. And so it became. The um, the evolution, though, of it, right, with the the pads and the sort of the, the, the hitting and all that kind of – I mean, literally this was uh, women suiting up to play, if you will, the, the male version of the sport, right? There's no – were there any accommodations, really, or was this literally – women stepping up to do the same thing as men were doing. Yeah, pretty much the same thing in most of the cases. Even in the early powder puff games, uh, the the high school girls wore the male equipment. I remember we had a powder puff game when I was in high school, and I loaned my uniform to one of the girls, and you know they played a game in full pads, usual rules. So it was pretty much, uh, yeah, Normal rule, normally equipped football games. What what, what was um, from your uh, perspective? What do you think the attraction was to play and maybe even get a chance to play uh, professionally? Now again, we put that in quotes, right? Twenty five bucks a game, or you know that kind of mm -hmm. stuff, right? This is not like a this is not a career move per se. But I, I'm curious as to what your sense of these women stepping up to play on the promise of playing, if you will, like a pro. Uh, as pros, um, motivation uh, and and where from uh, are these uh, are these women kind of coming from? All right. Well, in my research, I've talked to around 250 women who played the game, and most of them were like any other. Well, even the ones outside of the country were like a lot of Americans. They grew up loving football. They played in backyard games. Some of them played in junior high, well, grade school or junior high, you know, peewee football. And so when they saw a chance to play, you know, tackle football and maybe even get paid for it, you know, a lot of women jumped at that. It, you know, the original teams, when they put an ad in the newspaper, got, you know, hundreds of women coming out and saying, we want to play. And were there particular regions of the country where this was more of a um, uh, intriguing proposition, perhaps, than, say, others, right? Clearly, down south, if you will, or in Texas, right, where football is beyond religion, right, it seems like there was a, a, a greater uh, propensity for teams and, and, and people to sort of join. But I got a sense that the, my sense is that as this pro game was sort of coming into being in the 70s, uh, that that wasn't necessarily universal across the country. Or was it? Hmm. Well, Ohio, uh, where football is you know, maybe not uh, quite as much of a religion as in Texas, but pretty close in certain parts of the state, uh, has had you know, four or five teams through about most of this professional football history or the semi-professional football history. Um, Texas has had their teams. There have been teams in California. Um, you know, it's, it's spread pretty much all over the country. 
uh, even in Salt Lake City, which you know has a fairly small population, there are, I think three women's semi-professional teams, and there's a a girls uh, all tackle football for grade school and high school ages. So, you know, wherever somebody starts a team, it generally seems that they're going to find some women who are ready to play. They just you know, football is the most popular sport in America, and probably one of the things that gave impetus to the original uh, Friedman idea was the the new popularity of the Super Bowl, which started in what '67. Certainly, and and the NFL, you know, not nearly the totemic, you know, outsized uh, sports uh, juggernaut that it is today, but certainly was on its way as as starting to stand out and and. And become a thing, and then the spectacle of the Super Bowl, and that's a, but also too. And you mentioned this before. Maybe we should dig into this part now. Um, you mentioned Title Nine, right? So Title Nine um, is not only in the background of this, but arguably maybe even in the foreground, right? This is in, you know, Title Nine gets passed and 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 enacted uh, in uh, in and around I think 1972, right? So right. that's interesting because that's around the time that I think. Uh, the folks around Toledo and 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 what was either the predecessor or the beginnings of or the the transition to the National Women's Football League, um, the timing of that is is probably not by accident. These two things. I don't know if it had that big of an impact. I think uh, probably the Super Bowl and the growing popularity of of the NFL probably had more to do with it. It took a while for Title Nine to to filter down and to really take root. Uh, in the early years, several uh, young girls who wanted to play peewee or sometimes high school football had to take their local school districts to court to force them to allow them to play. And so it, it took a while for Title IX to, you know, to have an impact, um, whereas, you know, I think the money factor was what was you know motivating Friedman most of all how would you characterize the uh, the quality of play the types of players and um, uh, from your research uh, the games the experiences right I mean from from what we've discussed and, and what I've read elsewhere too um, you know uh, not every franchise was a Toledo right um, yeah. uh, but high school football fields uh, the equipment not necessarily being of the highest order, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, and maybe even the finances too, right? Mm-hmm. So the the quality of play varies widely. Uh, this is one of the debates that's held within the, the group of women who play football. Do we want to be a rec league team or a professional team, you know, to focus on quality play? For those teams who have chosen to go the quality route, the oh, the Boston Renegades, the Texas Elite Spartans, the Utah Falcons, the quality of play is very good, and the games are you know as good as you would see in many places. Um, now, the first two games I watched, the 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 final of the Challenge Feminine, they had to cut the game. A few minutes short, they called it off in the middle of the fourth quarter because the Argo Canes were running out of players. Um, One of the difficulties that women 
uh, face in playing tackle football is that most of them you know, find these teams in their 30s, and by the time you're 30, your body doesn't heal as quickly as it used to when, you know, you don't tend to be in as good a shape as you were when you're a teenager. And so the the first American game I saw was the Columbus Comets versus the Derby City, City Dynamite in Columbus. And I left at halftime because, you know, right before halftime, um, one of the Derby City players uh, got hurt rather severely, and we had to wait for an ambulance, and it was getting to be about 10 o'clock, and I was an hour away, so I took off. So on the low end, you see a lot of games with a lot of time uh, taken for injuries because the women are not in as good a shape as they might have been in their teen years. But at the high end, you've got a, a bunch of players who are in great shape, in football shape, and who play very well. So it varies. Um, when it comes to the uh, the various teams of of the NWFL uh, and and its sort of march towards professionalism and stuff, um, it's really interesting. And I, I'm wondering in your research uh, if you you know what your impediments were. I mean, obviously, a lot has been written about and even uh, in, in documentary form about the Toledo Troopers and, and, and arguably, or maybe not so arguably, perhaps the most dominant team. Although, um, I think some of the hairs start to get split when you talk about when the w NWFL started to, you know, when its end date was. I think there's some debate. It certainly fractured into certain things as the, as the 70s and the early 80s came about. Uh, and there's, there's a whole, there were a whole bunch of teams that it doesn't seem to be until recently, right? Some of our previous conversations and, and books and your stuff too, that have uh, really been there's not a lot about them, right? So I mentioned a few that I'm just generally aware. I mean, the, the L.A. Dandelions and the, the Blue Bonnets of Dallas and the Houston Hurricanes, H-E-R-R, -R, uh, and and maybe uh, in in a most curious way, the Oklahoma City Dolls when. There was actually a made-for-TV movie about them or inspired by them on uh, back in the late 70s. I, I want to say it wasn't Susan Anton. I'm trying to remember who was the, the star uh, of that, Susan that film. Blakely. Susan Blakely. Susan Blakely. There you go. Got to get my, uh, uh, my, my blonde awful, Susans awful to, together. Yeah, just an awful movie. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. But all the more reason to find it and watch it, right? But, I mean, yeah. I, guess my point, I guess my point is that there were little spurts of – uh, publicity, right? I'm sure publicity was part of the mix, right? I mean, uh, how do you stand out? Lots of challenger leagues, lots, lots of a lot of sports innovation, a lot of women's sports uh, movement beginning. Uh, it doesn't seem like the NWFL had a bunch of that, aside from a few exceptions, say like in Toledo. Uh, did you find the same kind of thing? Was it was it hard to kind of dig in and find more information about these teams and in the situations? Well, it is hard to find information. Um especially in newspaper articles, because for a lot of these teams, they play in relative obscurity, uh, anonymity even. Uh, that's starting to change a little bit, but in, you know, for many of the teams, there's a newspaper article here, maybe one there, uh, but there's not a whole lot about them. And that's one of the reasons I decided to write about this, because the you know, same thing with uh, American football in France. I, you know, some things like the Super Bowl or the AFL versus NFL or something like that have been done to death. And so I wanted to write about something that wasn't as well known. 
So what do you I mean, I think I kind of know the answer to this, but why do you think the uh, the the league itself kind of dissipated and I would call it dissipated versus folded. Right. It seems like there was a lot of I want to call it last gasps, but perhaps some diaspora. Right. Where some branches off and stuff. I mean, in essence, it it kind of was done by the end of the 80s. Um, I'm just curious as to uh, your collective thought as to why uh, it did kind of peter out and. I guess more importantly, why in the decades afterwards, nothing really kind of congealed to that level again, aside from maybe amateur leagues and, and regional stuff? Lack of money. <laughs> and, you know, as far as the attention goes, I think the teams, especially Toledo, Oklahoma City, etc., did get some good press at the time. A lot of it, of course, was the, you know, oh, look at the women trying to play football like the men and, you know, the novelty of that or almost the carnival uh, sideshow, you know, type of thing. But lack of money was what did it in. And also when you have a, a team like the Troopers, for instance, you have a core group of women who make it a success. And then over time, you know, life happens to them. They, they get too old and they, the injuries don't heal as fast or they get injured badly and so they retire some of them find other things to do in life and so that core group dwindles and the fact that there's no money in it means there's not much uh, interest in in new women coming along and I, I think women makes an interesting argument that title nine actually hurt the NWFL in that women who might have made good football players were instead going off to college to play basketball or softball or something else. And maybe part of that is because uh, there were more, let's call them, professional or budding professional opportunities at the end of the tunnel, perhaps, maybe then, say, in tackle football. I mean, arguably you could say it's still kind of growing, right? But But women the WNBA has been around for 25 years right I mean there's an example yeah and you know the large uh, the larger measure of success that WNBA has had is because the NBA bankrolls it uh, in women's football these women are still paying to play football uh, for the most part uh, well yeah they're paying to play football uh, and that amount varies from a few hundred dollars to around a thousand dollars a year so it's it's not an easy sport to play you have to buy equipment you have to stay in decent physical shape all year round it's a it's a way of life as, as much as it is a, a sport that you play right perhaps uh, not unlike a, a, a let's for lack of a better term a niche sport perhaps that may be a, a an immigrant perhaps brings with them and, and finds others who want to play with it. That could be a cricket. That could be a, uh, a rugby. I, but yeah, all those things obviously getting their own professional roots too. But but yeah, I mean, I guess after that, if you will, uh, uh, first major and at the time only attempt at a professional league, right? I, I, it, it soldiers on probably in either amateur or regional or semi-pro or, or other kinds of um, – uh, passionistas, I guess, right? Uh, like-minded uh, players that literally and figuratively play for the love of the game, and they'll recognize it's part of their overall life, not their 
not their only life because there's no professionalism really to be to be had at the end of the day. Right. So, yeah, that that gap between the late 80s and 1999, you know, the gap was there because there's just no money in it. And then a couple of other promoters came along, thought they could make money off women playing football. And the cycle started again. Um, this time, you know, more and more women decided to play across the country. And we started seeing the growth of, of leagues popping up like mushrooms after the rain and rising and falling with some rapidity. So, Again, the, the, the promoters thought there was money in it. didn't turn out there was, but uh, that's the impetus for the, the growth of the newer leagues. All right. I, I, at the end, I'm going to want to pull the thread through because uh, obviously there's a lot of stuff that's going on now that, that um, maybe is a, is a, a far greater uh, garden of, uh, of opportunity uh, uh, beyond um, what we're talking about now. But I cannot continue this conversation without uh, this sort of next phase. And I think you know what's coming. Um, uh, the um, And it's part of the history, for, for better or for worse. And to me, it, it, it's a it's it's an, uh, a monumental curiosity to me. Um, but, but you can see sort of the modern version hucksterism, I guess, of Sid Friedman in what was originally known as the Lingerie Football League, right? Right. Um, and you title it, and I think it's because maybe the, the league itself is now trying to call itself the X League. But can you give us a little bit of a, a, a background onto the, into the, the origins of this? And then we can get into sort of, I guess, the, the what the hell it is or was. I think it's probably was uh, as part of it. But, you know, for better or for worse... This was uh, circa 19, well, 2009-ish or so. This was the next attempt, really, at a, if you will, uh, a quote-unquote uh, bright light professional attempt at women's football. But it clearly wasn't what, you know, the, 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 it clearly wasn't NWFL style, was it? No. Um, and so... Uh... Yeah, that started off as the lingerie bowl. It was a, uh, oh, a competitor, I suppose, to the puppy bowl uh, at halftime during the NFL game. Uh, something to, to a pay-per-view event to watch during the halftime in the NFL, which usually takes about two and a half years, it seems. Uh, and so uh, then it... Uh, ballooned into the Lingerie Football League, which then rebranded to the Legends Football League, and which is now the, yeah, as you say, X-League. And I think it's still around. I'm, I'm not really sure. Uh, Mitch Mortaza, the man who created it, uh, still is tweeting things about football, I've noticed. I'm not sure what's going on there, although Mike Ditka apparently is is in charge of it now or owns it. The concept, though, was kind of an indoor variant of it, and uh, and their approach was, I don't know, explain, say, the play and the uniforms and stuff. I mean, for number one, indoor version well, it of it, of, right? It was ex exploitative. Right. Uh, originally, it was models playing outdoors on a shortened field. Uh, you know, 
basically models. There were a few that had some athletic ability, but it was you know looking good in lingerie that was the the main thing. And so after I think four years of that, Mortaza uh, created the lingerie football league, and it was an indoor game. Uh, generally probably better athletes than the first years, uh, but still in the, the uniforms that uh, were, you know, salacious, uh, appealing to the prurient interest, as they like to say. Uh, and so women, um, again, got a chance to play football. And there's, you know, there's arguments about whether this is real football because it's played on a different field, different rules. Uh, only women of a certain body type can play and all those sorts of things. But the women themselves seem to believe they're playing football. And that's why I included a chapter in my book. Um, and so it's gone through various evolutions. At one point, uh, when I talked to a French woman who was playing for the uh, Raphael Duce, who played for the Denver team, uh, they had just gone to leggings instead of the bikini bottoms. And she liked that, but you know, uh, most of the women dislike the uniforms, or so they say. And but they still uh, want the chance to play football, and I suppose get noticed for other things. Yeah, I, it's 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 a weird hybrid, and and it's also interesting too watching it or trying to find a, how to watch it on television and stuff. It was tightly produced. Uh, in some cases, you could never really tell. Uh, the way it was so tightly produced, whether they were truly playing indoors or outdoors. I know, uh, you know, they kind of alternated depending on the team or the franchise that, that you know, some of the games would be indoors, some of the games would be outdoors. Uh, it, it never really, you could never really sort of, I don't know, I could never, it was, it, it's clear that it was, it was hard to, you wanted to take it seriously because it seemed like there was some athletic competition going on. There were teams you know, in cities and franchises, so to speak. But then you also had to question it, right? Because it did seem to have some elements of, you know, WWE in, in some respects. I don't know about storylines and stuff, but, you know, the the the, the uniforms and, and, and whatnot, I, um, it was, it was kind of, a, I mean, I, you know, as a, as a curiosity, as something to break through into the competitive sports landscape, um, it certainly garnered some kind of attention, um, but I'm not sure it garnered the attention that maybe the maybe Mitch and, and his crew wanted or 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 maybe it was or was it something right, which is better than nothing. Right. And you maybe you're alluding to it with the with women wanting to play. And, hey, if this is what it takes, it gives us a chance to play. We'll go for it. Well, what do you think? It's probably the answer is probably somewhere in between. Right. Yeah. Well, it was a major irritant for the women playing full kitted football because it became probably the the most well-known version of women's football in the United States. I mean, it was on MTV uh, at one point. Uh, it was one of the highest rated shows they had on MTV at the time, uh, unscripted shows. Uh, and so women who played football in full uniforms you know, when they told people they played uh, football, they said, oh, you're in the uh, lingerie football league. And, you know, quite rightly, that made them angry because, you know, they they played the regular version of football. Um, 
But the athletes in the LFL, the, the level of play for the top teams was pretty decent. Um, let's see. What else? All right, I'm done with that. <laughs> yeah, no, but I and um, I and, and most were certainly it, what they were it, certainly pleasing to the eye, which I get on, in terms of the, of a product, if you will. But it, it did seem, from the little that I sort of understand of it, and some of the, the some of the uh, archival games that I've, I've seen, or, or, or uh, that there there was definitely some athleticism there going on, and I, I think even some of the interviews and stuff. I mean, I some of the coaches and 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 the players right were taking this quite seriously uh, and uh, and arguably uh, being able to, to flex their muscles literally and figuratively in, in playing uh, whatever version of the game there was, right? But then, you know, it's kind of you pay the price, right? You, I'm sure uh, the exploitative factor, certainly it, it played out as in terms of it being taken seriously, which I think probably is the goal of all involved in some way, shape or form. It's kind of this almost goes back to Sid Freeman in some respects, right? It's how do you bring women into a game that is historically uh, male dominated? Um, how do you break through into the sports landscape? And then at the same time, how do you keep it legit so that it, it maintains some level of consciousness in the sports fan's mind and grow it? Um, I, it seems like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't around this time. Maybe even now, too, still. Oh, probably so. Uh, it, during its time, the LFL and whichever name it was playing under was probably the most visible uh, women's football because it was probably the most professionally produced. Um Games were on television at first, and then after that, they were readily available on YouTube through the LFL channel. Uh, they had great success in expanding the game. They uh, had a season in Canada, a season in Australia. There was also plans to, to spread it to Europe. Uh, these international teams didn't last long because of resistance from women in those countries, not the women playing football, but other women. It's, I, I suppose you could liken it back to Lou Henry Hoover uh, taking the chance for uh, playing football away from the women who were playing for those promoters in Toledo. Um, so this gave women a chance to play football in a, a hybrid form, I suppose, but it still gave them a chance to play and I suppose attain a, a higher level of fame than their sisters wearing full uniforms. And of course that, you know, caused hard feelings on one side and probably both sides. So we still, we have this conversation in what, November of 2022 and, uh, it looks like the league uh, is now rebranding or going to rebrand itself as the uh, as the X League. Um, it's it's interesting too because if you look at some of the um, the promotional uh, stuff around it and the website and all that kind of stuff, it, there does seem to be some elements of sort of the original, shall we say, sexiness of it. But it does also seem like it has their their framing seems to be uh, taking much more cues from 
I guess, what's going on, frankly, in, in, in professional women's sports all around. And that's, I guess, sort of uh, uh, trying to flex some kind of muscle around legitimacy and athleticism and like this is a legit real kind of thing, maybe belying its original roots. Um, I, I got to think that's a good thing if that's true. Well, it's hard to tell. Um, and, you know, most of the moves that they made changing from lingerie football to legends football to X, uh, X League have been aimed, I suppose, at, at gaining more legitimacy. Um, <clears throat> recently, the X League on their board of advisors or something like that have brought in Sam Gordon, who was a girl who became an Internet sensation playing little girl for or little uh, peewee football against the boys and then helped create the utah girls or utah girls football league and so and now she's a college student and apparently on their board of advisors or something like that so yeah they're probably trying to go more mainstream although it's you know oddly become harder to find any games that uh, they may be playing i think they have played a season last year but it's not as easy to find as it once was. Maybe it's going back to pay-per-view. Well, all right, let's talk about some of the other things, though, and this will sort of be the final sort of thread that we pull through here, uh, because the future of women and the sport of, of uh, American gridiron football seems like uh, it's almost renewing in terms of its uh, possibilities again. Um, and in particular, I look at, uh, and maybe this is where the, the X-League kind of gravitates to or, or maybe there's some other challengers or uh, 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 players uh, players uh, entities that come in uh, to perhaps uh, fill in those gaps or, or take it to the, the 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 promised land if you will and that's you know you mentioned before dollars and money right um, the WNBA having uh, the um, uh, the full faith and credit if you will of the NBA and deficit spending uh, with uh, persistence for such a long time, um, the National Women's Soccer League, right? Not not the first attempt to do a pro soccer league. I think it's actually the third real one. Uh, no help from MLS, but but certainly is now growing in leaps and bounds. And all these other sports, too, finally, that are getting some uh, attentiveness. The NFL is not uh, ignorant of all this, right? And uh, for other reasons, too, their own safety and survival, if you will. Um, but the, it seems like this uh, flag football thing has become uh, quite a bit of a, a more than a dalliance for the NFL. And I it seems that that is where perhaps some of the heat might be gravitating around uh, the women's game anew and and, and 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 timely because of, you know, concussions and all that kind of stuff that the NFL arguably is going to, you know, finally have to kind of grapple with on a more um, uh, head on basis, so to speak. Um, it seems to me like there's some some real activity in action where the women's game, quote unquote, uh, could live and breathe anew and maybe in a sort of a, a real active flag ish kind of way and maybe not the hard hitting way that the NWFL had to do it back in the day. That's true. The NFL is promoting flag football and actually the the Patriots have been out there uh, supporting women's football. Um, Robert Kraft has allowed has loaned the the Patriots airplane to the Boston Renegades the last couple of years to travel to Canton for the uh, Women's Football Alliance uh, Championship. And so there, there have also been um, 
women's games held during halftime of NFL games. That's starting up again. Uh, let's see the uh, Utah girls uh, football league uh, actually played at the halftime of the pro bowl. I think last year, maybe two years ago. So women's football is definitely becoming more visible. Um, Collegiately also, too, right? The NAIA, I think, has some 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 efforts yes. to kind of make it more of a, a collegiate sport too. Yeah, there's several teams uh, that the NFL is partnered with the NAIA uh, to have uh, uh, flag football teams, and so that sport is growing. You know, there's still you know. Flag football really took off for girls in Florida when the state athletics association there was wrestling with the the problems of the numbers of, of male and female athletes under Title IX, and so they hit upon the idea of using flag football to boost the number of girl athletes, and it worked very well. Um, and so. When I've talked to girls who play flag football there and asked them, would you play tackle if you had the chance? They say, yes, we'd love it. So I think there's there's still going, the NFL seems to be going in the direction of flag football, but I think there's still going to be the market for playing tackle football because, you know, most of the women I've talked to and by probably all of the women I've talked to have said, oh, I really like the hitting. You know, I like crunching someone. Uh, it's like being able to, to perform legalized assault, one of them said. So there's always going to be that market for tackle football, but it does seem that flag is starting to become more popular, especially, especially after uh, the concussion crisis, uh, you know, about 20, what, 2016. Oh yeah, and I think I think that's going to even be more so as as more uh, players retire and and live longer, and uh, with uh, sadly with some of the the results that uh, take sometimes years to kind of uh, manifest themselves, the pensions and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, you know, the career is already short uh, for most um, NFL type players, with some exceptions. But but it almost feels like there's some hybridization, perhaps uh, both both on the men's side and the women's side. I mean. You know, we're talking about flag football and, and the NFL putting um, uh, bucks and in, 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 in uh, interest behind it, um, but there all are two. I think at least two kind of, if you will, top tier uh, tackle leagues for women: the Women's Professional Alliance and and the Women's National Football Conference. That that kind of uh, exists pretty exuberantly today. Um, uh, maybe a little bit of a state of the state uh, for those who are not following that those leagues uh, and what you perhaps think. Um, the women's game will look like in the next five to ten years. Where, where do you think it's going to kind of net out? Clearly, it's going to be something. I wonder what that something or some things are. Yeah. Well, it seems to be getting a lot more attention than it has during the the pandemic shutdowns. Uh, at one point, uh, one of the only ways to watch football was through a a documentary called Born to Play by Vera Deanna Lieberman about the Boston Renegades. That was on ESPN in prime time, which was a huge step. This recent uh, Women's Football Alliance Championship, uh, the, the top tier championship, 
between the Boston Renegades and the Minnesota Vixen was on ESPN2, on live broadcast television. There's also talk about uh, producing a, a, a scripted television series based around black and blue, love, sports, and the art of empowerment by Andra Douglas. There's talk of turning that into a scripted television series. Uh, you have two top-tier leagues that are starting to get a lot of sponsorship. Uh, when the Women's National Football Conference uh, became a thing, they broke away from the Independent Women's Football League, and uh, they started getting sponsorships from people like Adidas. The Women's Football Alliance has sponsorships from various corporations, plus the you know support of ESPN. Uh, also, the Pro Football Hall of Fame must uh, help them out because they're starting to hold their championship games uh, at uh, Tom Benson Hall of Fame Stadium. And, of course, you know Robert Kraft loaning them, them the Patriots Jets. So there is a lot of, of buzz around women's football, and a small buzz. And I say a small buzz because within the world, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Uh, there are also all sorts of women who are beginning to coach at the NFL level and the college level. Uh, Sam Rappaport, who's an executive for the NFL, used to be with um, USA Football. And while she was there, she started the Women's World Football Games, which brought in women from all over the world to learn the finer points of American football. Then she moved on to the NFL and created the Women's Career Forum. And so more and more women are becoming uh, executives in the NFL. And there are currently several who are coaching for various teams. Of course, the first was Dr. Jen Welder, who coached with the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, let's see, Callie Brownson, who is a coach with the, the Cleveland Browns also was the head coach of Team USA in this uh, last year's, last summer's uh, Women's World Championship, sponsored by the International Federation of American Football. Uh, and so more and more women are getting a place on the sideline in the boardroom. And so, yeah, it does seem that women's football is creating buzz. Now, probably the buzz is limited and this is, you know, a conversation that goes on forever with no, no conclusion. But it's probably limited because there are so many competing leagues. Um, if there was one league with all the top teams in it, they might get as much attention. They might get on TV more. Uh, but since there is no overriding financial uh motivation to have only one league you're going to have two sometimes three sometimes more leagues well it sounds like the opportunity to perhaps coalesce that uh, does exist i mean if you think about it as we record this show right i mean literally coming out of covid uh, there just seems to have been uh, there is still today a, an explosion of investment in all kinds of sports stuff i mean everything from you know, we already have a, a merger of the two major pickleball associations for god's sakes i mean you know athletes unlimited right which is a a novel approach to women's sports and and allowing sort of a, a 
uh, a packaged uh, and televised uh, environment that incentivizes uh, for for victories and and stats and that kind of stuff of, across a whole bunch of sports like volleyball and, and softball and, uh, and and the like. It, and I think there's just more opportunities for women's sports. I mean, I don't think you know many soccer fans would not have get, bet that the NWSL, the third major attempt for a women's league in in that sport, uh, would be as on the precipice of long-standing success as it is now. I I guess my my point is that um, dollars and streaming and and investment opportunity, uh, it seems like this one perhaps is ripe for it. Um, I, I would even go to the uh, the stretch, although you're you're much more the the expert than I that that maybe the flag variety could even uh, dip its toe into co-ed uh, and maybe make something unique. Out of that, not unlike the International Volleyball Association back in the 70s. And and one of the three newly announced professional leagues in, in volleyball is going to try again a, a co-ed kind of structure. Um, what do you think of any of that thought, <laughs> if any? Well, I think you're probably going to see more emphasis put on the flag football. Uh, recently in... Um, uh, Birmingham, Alabama this last summer, the World Games had flag football as a, a sport for both men and women for the first time ever. Uh, and so, you know, that garnered some attention. And probably one of the reasons for the International Federation of American Football was to make football, tackle football, possible, an Olympic sport. You know, that's that's going to face some challenges because well, the United States is going to dominate that, and we have dominated that, at least in the women's side. Uh, in flag football, though, last year, Mexico won the the championship. They beat the United States in the final game, uh, which, you know, was fairly unusual. Uh, but one of the problems with football doing what some of these other sports have done is that they don't have a feeder program and that affects the level of play, at least for some of you know some of the smaller teams. So, in other words, if you have professional softball teams, those girls and women, those women have been playing that since they were little girls. Um, same with basketball. But in football, you don't have very many places. In the United States, Utah is about the only place where they have a girls tackle football league. Uh, there used to be one in Indiana, uh, but I think that's gone by the wayside. And there's always talk about starting more girls tackle football leagues, but you know, they don't seem to come about. So. Yeah. I mean, the, the flag, the flag variety may be the, the non-tackle variety, right? Call it flag or evolved, right? Cause it seems like it could be more, shall we say accessible and maybe earlier on, and by the way, also at the same time, I mean, you talk to you talk to parents of of boys, um, you know, and maybe in, in historical uh, football hotbeds, there is a real resistance to have their boys play football because of all the stuff, uh, the concussion stuff and the injuries and all that relative to other sports. So I, it almost feels like to me like that we might be in a in a in a, uh, a moment in time where some of the planets may be aligning correctly to maybe aid and abet uh, women playing football, albeit in a an evolved variety. That could be. And flag is, I suppose, if you're if you're into women's tackle football, flag is probably a challenge to that. 
because, well, the you know the NFL and the NAIA are offering scholarships in flag football, and so people are going to go where the the money is. It might be a moment that was similar to Glennon's argument about Title IX and the Toledo Troopers. Uh, it might drain support from women's tackle football, at least in the short run. I mean, when those women get out of college, you know, if there's not a professional uh, flag football league or something like that, they're probably still going to gravitate over to tackle football if they get the chance. But in the short term, that might pose as a challenge for women's tackle football. But I think that's still a popular thing to play because you know, the NFL's not playing flag football, so you're not watching flag football on Sunday. You want to go out there and, you know, many women want to go out there and knock somebody down. So it's still going to be popular, I think. I, I guess the question I would ask to the insiders would be, um, why should it be one or the other? And and why couldn't it evolve into something that is that t- encompasses the benefits and the intrigue and the skill of, of both the quote-unquote tackle variety and the quote-unquote non-tackle variety, mm-hmm. right? Especially if it perhaps becomes the legit path to scale, uh, grass or, grassroots, uh, earlier uh, exposure and uh, athleticism and maybe even a, a vibrant sort of pro thing. And again, that could be, that could be co-ed, that could be uh, women only, that could be some other kind of thing, but I, knowing that the bigger forces of, I don't want to say that it, let's put it this way. The, 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 the sport of, of tackle football is certainly under duress. It may not seem it when you look at the NFL and its popularity, but you look at, uh, at, at, at where the talent is going to be coming from at earlier ages. Uh, there seems to be um, either a growing resistance or, uh, uh, maybe allure from other choices that might be safer or perceived as safer. Yeah, you know, the, it's an interesting thing. And participation in tackle football at the high school level for boys has declined, you know, somewhat, probably a hundred thousand or a couple hundred thousand over the last decade or so. But at that same time, uh, participation by girls in tackle football at the high school level has pretty much uh, maybe hasn't doubled, but it's increased quite a bit. So as more and more boys are, are not playing football, more and more girls are, which is interesting. And I, I agree with you that, you know, why not have any path you want to play football? And, you know, it'd be nice if one of those paths led to some money. It seems like flag football is leading to college scholarships now, which is a good thing. Um, but, you know, it'd be nice if women could make a living playing tackle football as well. Well, and that would be grist for your next book to take the next chapter of this uh, story of of the of the history. The good news is, right, it seems like there is absolutely more history to be written for women and the gridiron game. Yeah? Yeah, there is. Uh, in fact, uh, the next uh, uh, re- my next research project is expanding that story out to the rest of the world because women are playing all over the world, even in Egypt and Morocco, countries where you wouldn't think women would play many sports at all, and, and not let alone football, but they play in most countries in Europe. Uh, they play in um, 
let's see, Russia. Uh, it's, it's all over Europe. It's starting to blossom in Latin America, both flag and tackle. And so there's still a story to be told about women playing internationally. And they're all over the place. Fantastic. Really interesting stuff. I, I, I just continue to be uh, intrigued by uh, just how much history there has been and uh, arguably will continue to be uh, as women and pro football continue their uh, sometimes inelegant but uh, uh, absolutely persistent dance uh, with each other. And uh, yes, the um, Women's Football Alliance and the Women's National Football Conference uh, continue uh, to uh, percolate out there uh, in football land outdoors. And uh, from what we can tell, the X League, the uh, more indoor version, although I, I do know some of these franchises play some of their quote unquote indoor version games outdoors as well, uh, of the X League uh, coming back for a second year, uh, as far as we know, is still going to happen. Let me see. I think we've got uh, how many teams here? I think it's eight teams looking for a, uh, I think, a more full season. Uh, Seattle Thunder, Denver Rush, Atlanta Empire, the Kansas City Force, the uh, champion Chicago Blitz, Austin Sound, the Arizona Red Devils, and the L.A. Black Storm. Uh, and uh, so it's intriguing, and uh, it feels like it's getting more uh, legit, shall we say, uh, by the year in this now third incarnation of that uh, of that league. All kinds of fun stuff. And uh, for the background and uh, and more intrigue and stories, uh, the book is uh, worth a get. It is called Women's American Football, Breaking Barriers on and Off the Gridiron. It is by our guest this week, Russ Crawford, the good doctor. Uh, he, a professor of American history. So uh, he knows what he talks of. Uh, it is published by our pals at the University of Nebraska Press. It is available, all 408 pages of goodness of it, uh, wherever good books are found, but of course on Amazon. And we appreciate it, perhaps, if you can go out of your way to do it, go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up this numbered episode 290 with Russ Crawford, and uh, you'll find a convenient link to Amazon, and you will get it as quickly as humanly possible, either in hardcover or Kindle version. And thank you for doing so. We'll get a couple of pennies, nickels, maybe a dime or two of referral love when you do so. We thank you for that. We also thank you for following us on social media. We're on uh, let's see. We're on the Facebook at uh, Good Seats Still Available. We're on the Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. We're on the Twitter still, believe it or not, at Good Seats Still. And uh, let's see. Email, of course. Hello at Good Seats Still Available dot com. Uh, our thanks uh, tremendously to the uh, wondrous uh, gentleman that is Jerry Payne. He of Jerry Payne Audio Excellence in the uh, suburbs of Atlanta. Thank you, kind sir, as always. And uh, thank you all for listening. Until next week, we uh, bid you a fond adieu.